Welcome to episode 41 of You Are Not A Frog, How To Be A Professional Woman. Welcome to You Are Not A Frog, the podcast for GPs, doctors and other busy professionals in high-stress jobs. Even before the coronavirus crisis, many of us were feeling stressed and one crisis away from not coping. We felt like frogs in boiling water, overwhelmed and exhausted. But this has crept up on us slowly, so we hardly noticed the extra long days becoming the norm. And let's face it, frogs generally only have two choices. Stay and be boiled alive or jump out of the pan and leave. But you are not a frog. And that's where this podcast comes in. You have many more options than you think you do. It is possible to be master of your own destiny and to craft your life so that you can thrive even in the most difficult of circumstances. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Morris, GP, turn executive coach and specialist in resilience at work. I work with doctors and other organisations all over the country to help professionals and their teams beat stress and take control of their work. I'll be talking to friends, colleagues and experts, all who have an interesting take on this, so that together we can take back control to survive and thrive in our work and lives. Are you constantly stressed and thinking about work? Does your laptop come with you on holiday? Your to-do list have permanent residence in your brain and your worry about how to handle the latest crisis wake you up in the small hours. Then it's time to get your life back and that's exactly what our brand new online course will help you do. It's a 60-minute reset for healthcare professionals to shift your mindset so you can set boundaries and limits around your work without the endless guilt that you've not done enough. It's just £27 and you can get instant access now when you go to shapestoolkit.com slash get your life back. This episode is an interview with Dame Jane Dacre. Jane is a consultant rheumatologist. She's also the ex-president of the Royal College of Physicians and is currently president of the Medical Protection Society. Now, Jane is the author of the Gender Pay Gap in Medicine report. Now, the interim report's been published. The full report hasn't yet been published. We're waiting uh, for it to be published probably at once the coronavirus crisis has eased. This interview is uh, really interesting. Jane shares her insights over the years about how we can address gender inequality. And this episode is the first in a series of podcasts that we'll be releasing around discrimination and inequality because it's really important to address these issues at at the forefront of everybody's minds at the moment, particularly with the Black Lives Matter movement. Jane has some very interesting and some challenging insights for us and some really practical tips on what we can all do to make life better at work for everybody. Here's the episode. So it's absolutely brilliant to have with me on the podcast today, Dame Jane Dacre. Jane, would you just like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Jane Dacre. I was the president of the Royal College of Physicians. I'm a consultant physician and rheumatologist in London. I'm also the president of the Medical Protection Society, but underneath all that, I'm just a woman that works in medicine. Brilliant. Thank you. And I met Jane when we were both speaking at the Physicians Mums Group UK conference, and uh, Jane did this absolutely fascinating talk about about the sort of history of women in medicine, wasn't it? Yes, yes. And everything that you did that happened along the ages and how women have, have generally been pretty much ignored is it fair to say? Yeah well it's interesting that women have been involved in the care of patients for 500 years so I know that from the College of Physicians which was 500 years old in 2018 
And so I took the opportunity to commission a review which ended up in an exhibition of 500 years of women in medicine. And it was extraordinary to see how women had been overlooked for so long and actually still continue to hide their lights under a bushel a bit. Yeah. So it's really fascinating to me, this concept of you know, gender inequality and unconscious bias. And obviously, as a, a woman myself, I've experienced my fair share of, sort of sexism in the workplace. But I'm just fascinated about why it's important at all. I mean, is there any evidence that patient outcomes are improved if we sort this out? Well, there is. Uh, I was talking actually to the CQC about the gender pay gap in medicine. And it was very interesting talking to the chief inspector for hospitals, whose view was that there is very strong evidence that the care of patients is improved and patient safety is improved if you have a functional team looking after those patients. So if you have a group where there are inequalities in relation to anything, actually, BME, gender, whatever, that team is less happy, their well-being is less, and therefore the prediction is that their care for patients would be less good and patient outcomes would suffer. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Complete sense. It does, and it's interesting where I'm going around to organisations, discussing with them things that they can do to reduce the gender pay gap in medicine which, by the way, is huge for a single profession. We need to do something about it. I'm able to say to them, well, if you are, for example, in primary care, wedded to the partnership model, which we have shown might exacerbate the gender pay gap, that's fine, but you're not going to get rid of your gender pay gap if you continue to be wedded to that model. And if you don't get rid of your gender pay gap, you have staff that are less happy and that affects patient care. Now, I think I must be being really, really thick. Could you just explain to me why there is this gender pay gap? Because I was under the impression that sort of consultant salaries are set. And yeah. So there's a common misunderstanding between what is equal pay and what is a gender pay gap. So equal pay is equal pay for equal work. And that's enshrined in the law, has been for many years. I think it's 50 years this year, actually, it's its Mm -hmm. birthday. But a pay gap is the difference in average earnings per hour of women's pay expressed as a percentage of men's pay. Mm -hmm. So what a gender pay gap takes into account is the different demographics within the workforce. So, for example, the fact that There are more older men in surgery with clinical excellence awards compared to young women coming in at the lower salaries. And when you work work out the average pay per hour, you find that there's a gap between the two. So really, it's a broader measure of inequality in the workplace that's expressed by a pay. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And I guess women are much more likely than men to have to take career breaks for maternity to look after kids to then go to work part-time or flexibly exactly Exactly. and what what we found in our review is that there's a disproportionately negative impact of those things so if you just look at those things individually you might say and some people do say well it's quite right women are working less they're working less hours so they should be paid less but the amount 
that they're sacrificing is more than you would expect from just the number of hours that they're doing. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've always worked flexibly. I have three children. I have a lot of friends, both in medicine and outside of medicine. So in law and stuff like that. And it's just generally known amongst us that if you work 60%, you generally always end up working 80, 85%, but in your own time. Yes. And, I, and the, the sad thing is, and the thing that I think needs to be pointed out, is that in order to work flexibly, what women are doing is agreeing to a disproportionate reduction in their salary just to have the time off mm. to get their work-life balance correct. And it isn't right for that to continue, but there's also an economic argument because the contribution of in across several different professions of highly educated women to the workforce is very significant. And if those people are working less, are being valued less, or are even leaving, that actually has a significant impact on the GDP. It reduces it. So the loss of women to the workplace is affecting the country's economy. So whatever you might think of equality, there is a monetary argument here too. Yeah, and sometimes money speaks louder than justice, doesn't it, in some places, unfortunately. Absolutely. And what other findings did your interim report throw out apart from a gap in pay? Was there anything else that was surprising? What we were asked to do is to, to establish whether there was a pay gap. Answer, yes, there is. How big was it? And it ranges from around 11% for clinical academics to 18, nearly 19% for hospital doctors. And so it is quite a significant pay gap. And then we were asked to look at the causes and come up with recommendations to reduce them. So the causes are multiple and complex, but one of the biggest causes is actually the structure of medical careers. And what I found fascinating when it all tumbled out was that medical careers were created for the 1950s male. You might want to track that back to the founding of the health service in 1948. And what's happened is that there's been a significant change in the demographic of the people who are doctors who work in in the health service, but there hasn't been an equivalent updating of the career structures. And that's what needs to happen. The spine points and the way that the careers are, are, are structured have been unconsciously biased against women. That's really interesting because I remember one of the reasons I went into general practice was because I knew I wanted to have a family and I thought it was pretty much the one of the only options I could think of whilst you know I couldn't move around because my husband ran as a you know was very geographically based I couldn't just move anywhere and I thought actually this, this is the only way I can have a family and have a successful career in medicine and just didn't think that other things were really open to me and I know it's got a little bit better but do you think it has progressed much in the last 10-15 years? I think it has but I think there's still a long way to go. I think we're very good at seeing where we are and looking to future problems and we're not very good at seeing how far we've, we've come. So I've had a long career in medicine and when I look back at where we've come from, I think we have made a lot of progress. I think things are very different for women these days. When I was a trainee, there were only two part-time jobs for rheumatologists in training in the whole of the country. There are only two numbers. 
and now anybody can do it. So there has been a, a very significant change. However, women are going to make up at least 50% of the workforce, maybe more within the next couple of years. We haven't made enough change to accommodate those people and to make flexible working the norm. And so, I mean, I'm guessing that when you were coming through the system, it was, like you said, much, much, much more difficult. What's your story? How did you get to where you got today? I know that you were voted the fourth most influential person in the NHS in 2015 by the Health Services Journal. What, you know, what was your trajectory there? So I do the jobs that I wanted to do. I was very keen on being a physician from, a, from an early age. I really loved being a medical registrar and really enjoyed that job. But I reached a stage in my career where it looked to me as if there were a lot of things that weren't right and that I wanted to help to improve the system. On a personal level, a lot of that feeling came from the birth of my first child, I was a registrar in a registrar training program and was becoming a research registrar. I'd just gone into a research registrar thing and I became pregnant and was told by my boss that he'd never had a woman become pregnant who'd ever come back and made a success of their career. So probably that was it for me. I ought to go and be a housewife. And then as I went through, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I, that's not what I set out to do. That's not why I'd you know, done my MRCP or, or all of the things that, that I'd done. And then I had a really difficult birth and was terribly unwell and nearly, nearly didn't make it through and was trying desperately to get back to work against a huge number of barriers. So there were no part-time jobs. There was nobody that wanted to take me on. People thought that I wasn't serious because I'd had a baby. And also I didn't get maternity leave because I was on a research position. And so I had no rights. And I remember going to see a postgraduate dean who was actually incredibly helpful to me at the time, largely by being supportive. But I realised that there were no structures. There was no proper external structure that was going to help me. So if I was going to get back into work, I had to sort it out myself. And as with a number of things in my career, I sat back and thought, well, there's got to be a better way. And so in a way that empowered me, It made me feel I had nothing to lose, but I did have a responsibility to do things differently, to change the system. So I went on to do the first physician-lead job share at senior registrar level. The only way I could get it to work properly was to share with a bloke. And the reason why he wanted to do the job share was because he had a a glittering research career and wanted more time to do his research. And the reason why I wanted to do it was because I had, by that stage, two small children. And so it worked really well, uh, but they'd never had a job share before. They didn't understand, the hospital didn't understand how it was going to work. They couldn't work out what to do with things like my national insurance. It It was a real it was really complicated to work it out but we did and it worked incredibly well for both of us and also for the hospital it was Bart's in those days 
And it was him that really spurred me on. And this is a quote that I've used a number of times when I'm talking to women in their careers, which was Tim, my job sharing partner, sat me down one day. And at that stage, I'd increased the amount of time that I was working. And I had a day off to do the shopping and the laundry and all of the, you know, traditional female household things. And he said, Jane, isn't it time you became a full-time skiver rather than a part-time martyr? But <gasps> if I want to take time off, I take it off. I do what I want to do. I don't ask anybody. I don't tell anybody. And I get on with it. But every time you need to go to the supermarket or pick up your children, you're racked with guilt and you tell everybody all about it. Stop it. Don't do it. So I then, in my next job, increased to full time. And, you know, I don't see myself as a skiver, but it was the philosophy. Don't ask for permission. If you're a professional, you do your job. You don't have to compromise and go down to full time just so that you don't feel quite so guilty about having children. And that is really a hugely impactful thing. He probably doesn't even remember it. But it was a hugely impactful thing that he said to me. That's so interesting because, yes, I think women, professional women, spend their lives apologising and and feeling guilty about doing the things that you have to do to be a mother. And I know that, you know, sometimes if, if a guy leaves early to go to his school nativity play, for example, everyone's like, oh, oh isn't that lovely? Yeah, oh, isn't that lovely? What a nice dad. If a woman, it's like, oh, you know, it is possibly seen as, you know, she can't control her boundaries and all that sort of stuff. And it's, well, it's unfair, isn't it? Yeah, and I was brought up with a very keen sense of fairness. I was the only girl. I had three brothers, so I had to fight my corner from an early age. That reminds me of a story. I was at a, a while ago, it was about four or five years ago, I was at a dermatology update course with, with my mate, who was also a GP, and we were sort of sat there having a, a miniature whinge about, I think one of our husbands had done something about he couldn't pick up the kids at a certain time he wanted to and we were having a bit of a whinge and the sort of this bloke next to us looked a bit shifty and uncomfortable and we said oh sorry about that and we sort of looked at this other woman that was sitting opposite us and we said oh oh you know do you experience this as well and she said you know she said no I'm so lucky she said I'm a full-time GP and my husband is a full-time house husband so we've reversed roles we said wow that must be so lovely to get home from the surgery all the housework done dinner ready oh no she said he, he doesn't do any of the housework or anything but but he does look after the children <laughs> and <laughs> our jaws just dropped she's saying how wonderful he is that he manages to look after the children on his time off I can't imagine anyone saying that about their wife oh she's wonderful she's full-time at home but she doesn't do anything else you know but isn't she great for looking after the kids this was coming from a woman as well it just flagged up to me the different roles that are ex just society expects of us. The woman is, is generally the one who has the job and does the housework and looks after the kids and carries the emotional load. And the guy is generally the one that, that guys do help out quite nicely now, but we always thank them for doing it. It's, it's still, I think, traditionally seen as the women's role. Is that it what is, you've experienced? Or? Yeah, it is. It's a societal expectation, right? I now have a daughter who works full time and I have a granddaughter and you hear my daughter's husband saying, I've looked after the baby for two hours today and expecting a medal. Yeah. 
Or you hear the guys going, yes, I'm, I've got to babysit tonight. No, you're not babysitting. You're looking after your children. <laughs> I get it. You're pushed for time. And with over 200 episodes, how do you know which is going to be the one that lifts you out of the saucepan and back to thriving at work? Never fear, the You Are Not A Frog podcast quiz is here. Find out if you're a super squirrel, brilliant badger or mighty mole and I'll send you a personalised playlist with the top five episodes that will make the biggest difference to you. Discover your top of the hops, top five episodes, sorry, and leap into your happiest thriving self again. Just go to youarenotafrog.com slash quiz. Well, it takes a while to change the culture and I've learned to be patient about it. It's a lot better than it used to be. Yeah, just one more anecdote. <laughs> I'll get off my high horse. I was at some unconscious bias training a few years ago and some very senior academics. It was an absolutely brilliant presentation about unconscious bias in all, all sorts of areas. And about three or four very senior academic men stood up and said, I would love to. They were sort of complaining about, well, they were saying about how there's a lack of of senior women coming through and working in labs. I would love to employ more women, but no one's applying. And I just looked around and I saw the first guy. I thought, he's got a full-time wife at home. He's got a full-time wife at home. He's got a full-time wife at home. And all these very eminent, very senior scientists had full-time backup at home, sorting everything out for them. And I think that it's incredibly rare for a woman to have that. But I don't hear this talked about very much. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that's one of the reasons why in the generation immediately above my generation, the women that made it to the top usually didn't have children. And my generation, I think, is the first generation. And yours, I see you as a generation behind me, is the one where it should become the norm. But on the whole, you did better in your career as a woman without the burden, the responsibility of childcare because it's very difficult to keep that going as I'm sure you know I mean there's all sorts mm. of career and and uh, childcare crises that I could talk you through it's a complete nightmare keeping the whole thing going and it's very difficult yeah I think for, for my generation unfortunately we are still married to the people who had their mothers at home the whole time so mm. you know interestingly when I you know when we got engaged my father-in-law said to my husband you know you do realize you're marrying a doctor who will be out working you know quite rightly he said you know you know what you're getting yourself into I hope I hope he's pleased we got married now (laughs) 20 years later but my husband's mum was a full-time housewife and she sort of had to be in those days and I think that's what's been modeled to him and all of our friends Whereas I'm hoping for my children, they now see, and we do share out the housework and my husband's absolutely brilliant at doing the laundry and, you know, they are now seeing it be modelled through. So hopefully by their generation, it would have come through. But I, I think my, we've scuppered ourselves, my generation, by wanting to work, but also feeling like we should be doing the, the stuff. That's the concept. So there's a book called Having It All that was written actually by a friend of mine and the whole question that it's a it's a novel it's chick lit really but the whole question is about can you be a successful career woman can you still live your life can you be happy can you keep your marriage and your children and the whole thing together and there's some question over whether you can i have to say i, I think you can i think you have to make compromises 
I think you have to adapt yourself as a person to do it. And you have to adapt what you're prepared to do, but it's certainly possible. And I think I've had a, a, a charmed career and I have had a, a series of, of good jobs. Um, I've, got, I've still got the same husband for a little bit longer. I've got three grown-up children. It is possible to do and survive. It's just that society conditions you against that. And it, at the moment, seems to be an anomaly. One of the things that I really want to focus on in what remains of my career is making that no longer be an anomaly of supporting women through because they certainly have the capability, the capacity, uh, the creativity to have very fulfilling careers to contribute a huge amount and also to have fulfilling family lives. So what can we do? You know, what advice would you give to people? We were thinking earlier, weren't we, about about the micro initiatives and then the macro initiatives. Mm. So the micro initiatives are are things that I see as you sorting out your life locally, making it possible. And that's about being organised in your personal life, about sorting out your domestic responsibilities, your childcare, having a nursery that's near where you are, living, living near the school, having an arrangement with your partner so that so that it makes life easier. But then one of the things that I think we women don't do enough is get into the leadership in order to change the system and sort out the macro issue. Mm. So during my career, when things went badly wrong, when after the birth of my first child, I went back and really struggled with sorting out the micro things, with finding someone to look after my baby, with getting back to work, with getting everything back on the road. But then if, if you do that, you're stuck in the system. And if you quote the Einstein quote, if you always do what you always done, you always get what you've always got. And so there reached a stage in my career where I thought, well, there must be a better way of doing this. And that's when I started to get into leadership. So, so you miss out a bit on what makes you feel valued as a professional because you're no longer doing that face-to-face stuff with whoever, with the patient, with if you're a teacher, with the students. But what you can do is change, use the policy levers to change the system for the better. And so that's what I started to do. And so I think I now do less and less of the micro stuff and more and more of the addressing the complexities and the problem in the system. That's not just about being a woman and working as a woman. That's about the NHS too. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, it's so important that we don't see this as just yet yeah, individual issues, actually. It's a system-wide thing. And changing the system makes it better for everybody, not, not just for women. It makes it better for the men too and for the patients. Yeah, and as doctors we're not encouraged or trained to be leaders enough i don't think we look at the individual problems in front of us we treat the patient in front of us and we say oh those managers they just haven't organized my clinic properly rather than thinking hang on this is my clinic if i want to change how many patients i see or what time it is i I need to stand back and i need to help them to do it right for me and we we don't naturally do that we're not trained to do it We're also trained to come in and deal with whatever the world chucks at us that day. So in a a clinic, you go in, you sit down and people come in 
and you deal with whatever comes in. You don't stand back and think, well, hang on, how can we do this in a better way? And that's what I think we should be doing more of. Yeah, yeah. You said something very interesting earlier before we started recording, and that was sometimes we just do things which makes us look a bit like victims. Yes, because if, you, if all you do is work in a system that hasn't been created for you and you're constantly just having to put up with things and make them better, it demoralizes you and it makes you feel as if you're a victim of the system. And what you don't think through or what one doesn't think through is that actually this is, it's a system problem. So rather than feeling a victim of the system, change the system. There's a great, I think it's a quote from a woman from Harvard Business School called Iris Bonnet. And the quote is, don't fix the people, fix the system. So we shouldn't be trying to adapt ourselves to imperfect systems. We should be looking at the system and adapting it to us. Don't you have to be at a certain level to do that though? Well, I think people used to think you had to be at a certain level to be able to do that. But there's a lot of discussion now in leadership fields about something called systems leadership, which is where individuals at whatever level in an organisation identify a problem that needs sorting and they get their heads together to sort it. And you don't have to be in charge to do that. So you can start that kind of thinking wherever you are and you get better and better at it. I know that some people who have tried to speak out and have tried to change the system often find themselves quite patronised by people. And, you know, oh, it's, I have a, an acquaintance who shall be, remain nameless. But whenever I start talking about unconscious bias towards women, he sort of says, oh, oh, I can't say anything here because whatever I say is going to be wrong. Oh, dear. You know, oh, you know, and it's just it's really annoying. <laughs> it's really patronising. And it just feels like you know, oh yes, got to be PC, got to help the women type thing. But, oh, I mean, have you encountered that sort of attitude? Oh my goodness, yes. Oh. And I have a zero tolerance. I, I actually had a hilarious encounter with John Humphreys on the Today programme, where he once said to me, Professor Dacre, whenever I see a very, very senior doctor, it's a man, what do you say about that? And so... I said, Mr. Humphreys, I am a very, very senior doctor and I'm a woman. You're demonstrating your unconscious bias. Mm. And it just shut him up. So, and he stopped and he actually came beetling out after me after the interview, which I think was probably about the gender pay gap review and apologised and said he would be in terrible trouble and he wasn't allowed to do it and blah, 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 blah. So I think the thing to do if you have the confidence to do it, which I think I now have, is to terribly politely call it out and have zero tolerance. So if somebody's patronising you, you say, well, isn't that a little bit patronising? Or do you really mean that? Or what do other people in the room think about that? At the Royal College of Physicians, in when I was president, a senior male fellow in the room at the first ever meeting that he'd been at said to me I think that's a serious blunder now would he have ever said that to a bloke probably not and I said I find it really interesting that you think having never actually met me face to face that you can say something like that to me 
in a room full of people. And it just whacked him back in his box. So here's a, a question though. When women do respond like that, they often then get labelled as stroppy. Yep. And the problem with that is? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah, I, well, there are ways of doing it. So, so you, you, want, you don't want to be strident. So the issue is about being assertive without being aggressive. Yeah. And not being strident. So if you do it with a smile on your face, or if you do it and then say, now, come on, let's go and have a cup of coffee. So if you defuse it so that you, you don't want to put people down and humiliate them openly because then you're being as bad as they are. Yeah. But you do need to point out when they say something inappropriate in a way that they can listen and change their ways. Oh, that's really, really good advice. Sort of looking back on your career, what advice would you give, you know, the trainee James Acre now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know whether you ever saw the film, The Best Marigold Hotel. Oh, yes. Yes. Great film. Do you remember the quote from that, which said, it'll all be all right in the end. And if it isn't all right, it isn't the end. Oh, right. Okay. So hang on in. Mm. Carry on. You may get knocks. You may get wobbled over. You may think that everything's a complete disaster. But in fact, normally it isn't. So pick yourself up dust yourself down it'll all be all right in the end I love that um is there anything that looking back you would have done differently oh god loads of things absolutely (laughs) loads of things if you don't make mistakes you don't learn so I think one of the things to remember is that every mistake is an experience and nothing is really ever wasted and I don't really believe in having a lot of regret because it it doesn't help you you can't live your life regretting what's gone before you have to always look forward yeah I think that, that's really wise isn't it and you know for people listening to this podcast who feel that they are there is conscious and unconscious bias against them in the workplace not just with pay but with all sorts of the things working hours maybe bias in the home, they're expected to take a, a high-end proportion, housework, the emotional load of the childcare, you know, what top tips would you give them? Well, I think you need to find a non-confrontational way of fixing it. And that's usually to do with sitting down and talking people through it and coming up with a plan and a system that allows you, allows you to sort it out equitably. It doesn't always work, but I prefer... What is it? Jaw, jaw to war, war. So find a way of pointing out the issues of coming up with a compromise and reaching a situation where you feel better about it. And recognise that it can't all be done in one sitting. It's attrition. It's a slow, it, changes will happen and they will happen slowly. And I know that the gender pay gap report will be coming out soon. What are your, we hope so, we're right in the middle of coronavirus at the moment, so no one quite knows what's going to be happening and when. What are your hopes, you know, in your wildest dreams, what will you hope will be the outcome and the changes that happen? Well, it's not only hope, I'm trying to facilitate, to organise, to make it happen. And so that takes quite a lot of, of work. So what I am trying to do at the moment, the report is, is written because of all of, the, all of the stuff going on with coronavirus and what have you. 
we don't quite know when it's going to see the light of day. But we know exactly now what to do. We know what the gap is, we know what causes the gap, and we have evidence-backed up statements as to what would reduce it. So what I'm doing at the moment is seeing all of the organisations that play some role in that reduction and being very pragmatic about saying, this gap is unacceptable, which they kind of have to accept because it is. This is what you can do to help reduce it. So what I would like you to do is, first of all, accept and welcome this piece of work. And secondly, play your part with colleagues in reducing it. And if we can do that, that will gradually make things better for everybody. And if we have anyone listening to podcasts that's maybe a senior partner in a practice, managing partner in a practice, clinical director in a hospital department, or, you know, senior partner in, in a law firm, are there any small things that they can do tomorrow to help start helping things? Well, I think one of the first things is to look at their gap. Quite a lot of people are not aware of it. So to look at the gap, and I suspect they'll often be quite unhappy with it, quite surprised by it. And then there are simple things that you can do uh, which are self-evident about supporting your women. If there is a very good and able woman in your workforce, then you need to nurture her. You need to encourage her to apply for that next job, encourage her to go for the Clinical Excellence Award, encourage her to take on the role of medical director or become a partner because the evidence from literature generally shows that women don't step up to the plate quite as much as men. They need to be encouraged. They don't feel as confident. They don't oversell their wares. So, so they need encouragement. And that's something that everybody can do. You don't have to be a boss. You just have to be a sensitive person. Absolutely. That's really good advice. Jane, so once you've done promoted this gender pay gap report, I guess you'll be sort of working on implementation of the recommendations. Is that right? Yes. Well, I hope so. We have to see it through first, but I'll certainly be very interested in what happens with the recommendations and on, and on seeing it through. Yes. And then what other ambitions do you have in your own career? I've sort of reached the stage where I, what I want to do now is to give back. And if I think about the main principles of what I would like to do in my career, it's to support the profession. Things have been very difficult for doctors over the last few years. You know, I was president of the College of Physicians during the junior doctors industrial action. So I really saw how hard it had become for people to thrive in medicine. So the, the principle of what I would like to do is to improve that, to give back, to help people. And I will only take on roles that allow me to do that. Great. So watch this space for the future. Great. Well, Jane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real honour and privilege to speak to you. And you've said so many things that are really thought-provoking and really interesting and I think there are things that all of us can do you know to change things tomorrow so thank you so much thank you it's been a pleasure and all power to your elbow thank you speak soon thanks bye bye 
Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please subscribe to my You Are Not A Frog email list and subscribe to the podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, then please leave me a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. So keep well, everyone. You're doing a great job. You got this.